Welcome to Michigan Hockey Cast 4.27. The only thing left to say is Michigan Hockey Country, let's ride. Alex Drain, let's ride. I say that we start with a positive because we're going to have to drag through a few things in the short-term future. Uh, the Avs won the cup. And more importantly for this podcast, um, three prominent Michigan players also won the cup. Jack Johnson, Andrew Cogliano, and JT Comfer, who um, has been around a little bit longer with Colorado and played a b- slightly bigger role. Um, I just thought we could give a little tribute to each of them short term. Um, I mean, I just, okay. So obviously I'm an avalanche fan and it was a lot of fun on many levels, but it was really cool to see how far up in the cup hoisting line they moved Cogliano. I mean, he was, I think second didn't, didn't Gabe hand it to him. I'm pretty sure. And I mean, he's been there for what, two months and all of a sudden he jumps. No, I'm sorry. EJ was second, Eric Jones. He's been around a long time, but, but Cogliano, I think, was third. And I just thought that that was a really cool thing for him who, you know, I think he's made one cup finals with Dallas in sort of the fake tournament, as we kind of call it. And um, he was it was just cool to see him in the top three getting to finally get get the cup and um, kind of make a huge difference on a team like that when he's, you know, in his with the twilight of his career. Yeah, Cogliano is a respected guy and he's played eleven hundred games. Um, in the NHL, long career. He got really close with Anaheim uh, in the mid-2010s. They never made the Mm -hmm. cup final, but that team was always one of the two or three best in the West. They could never win in Game 7 at home. Uh, They lost, I think, in the Western Finals against Chicago in Game 7 in 14 or 15, one of those years. Um, They probably would have won the cup if they'd won that series. So he got real close and then, you know, got there again with Dallas and then finally did it. I mean, He's a guy a lot of people like and um, a good long career. I mean, he might be. Let me look at the – is he the most games played in Michigan history? Yes, he is. Yep. Is he really in the NHL? Wow. I was going to yep. say because Jack just hit 1,000 this yep. year, and Pacioretty's been around a while too. Pacioretty is at 850. But he's also he's also been hurt, I guess. But, yeah, um, yeah. and just like – I mean, I'm sure you watch a bunch of – the, the different series too, but Cagliano is like, I mean, he get, he breaks his hand and he like can barely hold the stick in the finals. And he's like diving to block pucks with like his mouth and stuff. And you're just like, I mean, this is, this is the stuff of legends, right? It wasn't Ray Bork in 2001, but it was like, this dude has been around forever and he's given literally, you know, a, an appendage <laughs> to, yep. to win it. And and then Jack Johnson, I mean, you know, of Michigan fame for a number of reasons, um, seems like a really good dude. I've gotten to know a little bit more about him professionally just watching Colorado this year. He was signed a minor league like contract to basically try out. And I don't think the abs were planning on him being on the team very much, but he ends up basically playing the whole year and he'd never won a cup either. I don't think he'd made the finals, if I remember correctly. Uh, he was with Columbus. He was with 
Pittsburgh, but not when they won their cups. He was with the Kings, but before they were. Yeah, he he had the misfortune of being traded from a team that won the cup midseason. Yeah, he was that's in right. the Jeff Carter trade in 2012. <laughs> so he would have been there. Yeah, presumably. But he finally gets it. And then I think I think on his day with the cup, they go to some ice cream place and like fill it up and his kids are eating ice cream out of it. And one of his small kids gets baptized in like the cup. I mean, it was just pretty epic and pretty cool for him, especially all the stuff he's been through, not only with, with his family and everything, but you know, he was a top five pick and heralded as this is the next great defenseman and never quite lived up to it. And, but found a way to stick around, played a thousand games in the NHL, got his, you know, I think it's a silver stick this year. And um, it was just cool to see guys like that and, and a guy who overcome overcame a lot, including some, you know, the financial stuff with his family and um, just getting to raise the cup. I, I don't know that the abs are going to sign him again. He hasn't. Um, I, I don't believe he's, he's retiring. Right. I mean, is I he mean, gonna try and play again. <laughs> it probably depends on if he wants another run. I, I mean, Cogliano resigned. I figured he'd be the first one to retire after all of that, but yeah. Anyway, the, uh... Jack Johnson had never won a playoff series before this year. Is that true? Yeah, I just looked that up. <laughs> uh, so that's pretty Good cool. time to win them all, right? <laughs> Jeez. And then JT Comfer, um, you know, doesn't have the track record that these guys have, but was a great Michigan player on that CCM line with uh, Connor and Mott and um, Warensky, I think was on the back end for those teams had a really nice Michigan career from all my accounts. I've heard he's, he's a pretty good dude. He's been a great soldier in Colorado. They all, they've loved him. He's actually was on that team. The abs team that was like 48 point team. They call it. There's like five people left. He, so he's been around for all of it and he reaches the pinnacle and he's a guy I've been a little bit harsh on when we've graded NHL guys because he's making three and a half million and not quite pouring in the statistics that you want from that, especially on a team that's trying to win a cup. But I will tell you what, he's played really well in the playoffs, had to step up when Kadri got hurt, did a great job and actually scored a number of goals. I think he had five goals maybe in the playoffs. I think yeah, well, they he, had, had, he had two in the clinching game against St. Louis. That's right. Yep. Including the one coming out of the box. Yep. Right. He comes out of the penalty box and, and scores the other way. And then he had another goal. I think he had, I think, five total in 20 games, which, I mean, that's not a bad haul for a playoffs. Um, and he's, he's got one year left for Colorado, so he'll be back. But pretty cool for him. Um, I mean, you probably have a, a conference story or, or something you associate him with because you, you well, that was that, that was just before you got into yeah, school. That was wasn't a little, it? Yeah, that was a little before me. But one of the last years, you know, but good player and and you know gets a cup and just a a role player on a on a really good team and you need guys like that so um you know good for them and and for all those guys i'm trying to think i can't remember a cup in my memory where three michigan guys had won not only their first but just a cup in the same i would think on a team i would this is yeah and honestly if tampa had lost to the rangers there would have been six Michigan players in your because <laughs> you had Truba, Truba yeah. Cop, and and Tyler Mott. Mott. Yeah. yeah, and so that would have been a pretty pretty epic finals from a Michigan perspective. We might have actually had to do like a live watching or something if, if there's that many Michigan players. But um, so that's the positive, the fun. If you're a Michigan fan or an Avs fan or just a hockey fan in general, uh, now it gets a little more dour, I suppose. Um, you know, I b- I believe it was around. Was it the beginning? Was it January when all of this first kind of poked about? 
It was right after the Wisconsin series in Madison. So it was like late January, early February. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a, a letter that breaks about how there's some trouble in the program with uh, some of the upper management, including um, Mel Pearson and other named fellows. And um, we didn't really know what to make of it because it wasn't really uh, like official. It was just a, a leak of a letter that was saying that there's something going on essentially. And there was a bit of an investigation, but at that point, Michigan hockey had been playing for what four months. Yeah. So the letter that leaked was from, I believe Wilmer Hale to the university of Michigan or was the other way around saying that they had been hired to do an investigation yes. um, into these four things. So that's how we got familiar with what the allegations were that they were looking into. But Basically, from that point on, we didn't hear anything. Um, yeah, officially. Officially. I mean, there was a, a small story in M Live in June that Rick Bancroft, director of hockey operations, who we will talk about more, uh, is not retained by the program. And that was basically it in the way of things well, he, that we heard. He retired, right? I mean, well, or so the story goes. <laughs> we don't know exactly. We're, yeah. That's why I said he's not retained. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, so. Nothing really. I mean, Michigan has one of their probably hype second half, most hype second halves that I can remember. Um, the the OA team was the number one overall seed too, but Michigan has, you know, they're the number one seed. They're probably going to go to the frozen four when you look at the bracket. And then, you know, they have as good a chance to win as anybody. And so through all of this, including like the Olympic up and down roller coaster, like you don't really hear anything. Nothing's going on. And then, you know, they lose to Denver in overtime and you're just kind of really deflated. And you and I did a couple podcasts of like post end of season and we still don't really hear anything. And you think, well, at some point something's got to happen. And then you real, I mean, I, I'd have dinner with Craig a bunch of times and we'd sit there and be like, so I guess the hockey situation's the same. And it's like June and then it's July and we're in the same boat. And I mean, here we are early August and, you know, finally we have some resolution, but that sure escalated not very quickly. Uh, yeah, very unusual. Uh, we really didn't <laughs> hear anything in the three months where he was, Mel Pearson was an at-will employee. That's very odd for a coach of a major program. For a um, while, not even just like a week. <laughs> yeah, for three months, basically. Um <laughs> And the fact that through all that time, Mel continued to tweet as if he was the head coach and he continued to tweet as if he was the head coach <laughs> all the way up until like several hours before he wasn't. So that was all very odd. And, you know, the insiders reported on May 2nd or whatever, right after Mel's contract expired, they said, oh, you know, the investigation's almost done and, and he's going to be back, you know, and then a month after that same story. Right. They they intend to keep him. And then. But each month that goes by when we're being told they intend to keep him, but they're not signing a contract continues yeah. to be a little like, well, what's going on here? Um, and then last week, the dam breaks. Yeah. And the report is released and everybody's scrambling to find it. And then it gets deleted and then other people find it. And then finally it's out and, you know, everybody's mostly read through it. I think I got through the first 40 pages before the website that I had, like cut it off or whatever. And I mean, it was, there's a lot of more of the same. There's a few bits and pieces you could take out that you're like, well, this is a big deal and this is a bigger deal. And but a lot of the interviews were just, well, you know, yeah, I don't they're showing, yeah, they're showing their work. Right. So they're including yeah. all the stuff that isn't really <laughs> useful. 
Um, so I, I, right. So the first, I, to me, the biggest thing, I mean, you know, you can talk about this demand situation. We can talk about that a little bit, but the biggest thing to me was the Rick Bancroft stuff. And he was accused of a number of things, including something that, um, Steve Shields said to Bill McCall in a gathering around of, of, you know, discussing this in front of Mel Pearson and everything that wasn't super great. But, um, I think the thing that kind of struck out to me the most about it was that, you know, Mel kind of defended him and the report where didn't really come down on Mel super hard, but that's not, you couldn't really escape reading that report without coming away with a negative view of Rick Bancroft. Well, sure. I mean, the Bancroft stuff was real bad and it seems like a very, uh, very surly fellow, not someone that you could really work with. Um, the report obviously centered on, uh, you know, issues with uh, female employees, but and, and they were, were plural. Yes. And, yeah. and there were issues with male employees. There were issues with basically everyone who knew Rick Bancroft, um, <laughs> except yeah. for Mel Pearson, for whatever reason. <laughs> and, it, you know, you really get the sense that this was a guy that had kind of overstayed, you know, his welcome and. The people to at the top, need, to, <laughs> the people at the top need to make a move in that situation. Yeah. And, and to me, that was one of the bigger things was like, this seems you can argue left and right about, well, I shouldn't say left and right because it'll get political. But I mean, you can argue one way or another about the evidence says this or that or whatever. And, you know, you can be right or wrong, kind of. But it seemed like this was a no brainer. Like you, you can't have this guy around. Yeah. And he, in his capacity in the organization, he was basically the right hand man of Mel Pearson. In some ways, Mel had more administrative power um, than, than Rick Bancroft did. And, you know, uh, continuing to employ this guy uh, definitely falls on, on Mel. The, uh, the other thing that I think really stuck out, and you and I talked about this a little bit, was the exit interviews of all of the seniors and, and players that left. And um, they basically said that speaking out against the establishment or the administration um, would not be without consequences. Yeah. So to me, there were the two most notable firing offenses in this uh, investigation that came back about Mel. Number one uh, is the, the things with the players and that sort of thing. Uh, two, two little nuggets of team culture related issues. Number one, the climate survey conducted in May, 2021, which was not in the report, but was leaked in conjunction with the report. And that one was put out by uh, Katie Strang and The Athletic. Um, and that was one that when we had heard about it, I was kind of saying, well, we need to see what the uh, what the players think. Right. And if it's yeah. a, a few people, then, you know, I don't know, you can't please everybody. But if it's a lot of people, then that's a major problem. And uh, the results indicate something that is extremely factional and a basically one out of three. Yeah. So the survey's results uh, found that 32.4% of respondents reported not feeling respected and treated fairly by Pearson. And by the way, these are players, but also staffers. So kind of everyone involved Um, 31.3% indicating they personally experienced offensive, intimidating, discriminatory or harassing conduct. And 34% saying that overall, they uh, describe the culture negatively rather than positively. 
That's um, just that's just really high, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of people that are disgruntled. And yeah. we don't know how many of those are players. But then building off of that is what you brought up, the April 2022 exit meeting, which was happening right as the report was finishing up between Josh Rickalew and Richelieu, eight, I think. Richelieu, okay. eight mm-hmm. senior student athletes on the hockey team, which we can come up with those names pretty fast if you just yeah. look at the roster. Yeah. Um, And they said, and this is in the report's uh, official quotes, many voiced concerns that respondent, which is Mel, holds grudges and that if student athletes were to, quote, complain or criticize Mel, they won't play. Um, The student athletes also told him that when Mr. Mann approached Mel to discuss concerns with the program after the 2021 NCAA tournament, Mel threatened to revoke Mr. Mann's scholarship and demote him from his captaincy. Mel told the professional hockey team with which Mr. Mann was communicating not to sign him to a professional contract, and Mr. Mann had opted to keep his mouth shut to avoid additional consequences. Uh, The student athletes said that Mr. Mann's experience raising concerns to Mel made other members of the hockey team, quote, afraid of the consequences if they, quote, came forward. That's bad. Yeah, that's. um... (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, there were some people that were saying, "Okay, if this is what it is, how are they getting top recruits? You know, the problem here, I think, is that reading those quotes and understanding what's going on, it seems pretty clear to me that uh, Mel played favorites in the locker room. And I think it's a little notable that the eight seniors, none of them are really NHL guys. Um, I don't think that's kind of a coincidence in terms of uh, who has concerns and who doesn't and perhaps who's being favored. But overall, all of that points to a factional divided locker room where players are, are feeling, you know, some of them are, are happy. Others are very upset and they can't do anything about it. Um, and the, the perhaps the, the team is not as cohesive as you might want and all these kinds of things. Um, all of that is stuff you don't want and can hold the team back, um, can hold back their on ice performance when you have those sorts of off ice issues going on. Well, and, and you can sort of steamroll a team because you just have a lot of talent. But when you're going to go up against a Denver or the tight defense of a Quinnipiac or something like that or you know, Notre Dame, as we've noticed, like that's sometimes where you win those games is just by being a team. I mean, that's what we talked about with Cogliano and, and the avalanche is just like, you know, you have that guy who's willing to put his face and his hand, who's 30, whatever years old and block these shots when he's been there for a month and a half. I mean, that yeah. speaks to a different kind of culture than, and, and the other thing I wanted to build on what, with what you were saying is, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that these seniors were the ones that were picked on because I mean, yeah. you look at them and a lot of them played, but they could have seen that it definitely happened to other people. Yeah. And I mean, you, the, the survey uh, results show that it's a big enough amount um, that it could be people of all ages. And by the way, the athletic piece by Katie Strang did have, some of the individual survey uh, results, uh, as in what specific people wrote, those are obviously more he said, she said, because they are individual responses. But some of them were also very bad, including yeah. the one about pressuring uh, players not to see their families over holidays. Uh, <laughs> a lot of things, a lot of things you don't want uh, kind of to see uh, written out. Um, the other thing I was going to bring up, and this was the other to me, fireable offense is the lying to investigators one. I mean, that one to me is just, that's kind of done, right? Like when that happens, that's kind of the end. And I mean, that's, that's a criminal offense, isn't it? (laughs) Well, he wasn't under subpoena. This is a private investigation. Okay. But but if it was a government. You play that out enough. (laughs) Uh, 
May 12, 2021, Mel had a meeting with Steve Shields, and uh, who, by the way, is the person filing the complaint. He was a former Michigan goalie who was then a goalie consultant, first for Mel at Tech and then again brought back at Michigan. There were obviously some things in the report that indicates that Steve Shields had some other issues with Mel. Um, yeah. There were there were some things raised about his position going from paid to unpaid as a result of COVID cuts, all kinds of things going on there. But um uh, this one is particularly uh, problematic. In his March 30th, 2022 response to the preliminary report, Mel asserted that he, quote, did not discuss Mr. Mann with Steve Shields, that a May 12th, 2021 conversation with Shields, quote, never took place, and that Shields' allegations that such a conversation occurred were false. And then the recording that Steve Shields took of that meeting, uh, let's just say, contradicts that. The recording shows that Shields and Mel did discuss the circumstances surrounding Mr. Mann's departure from the Michigan hockey team. We provided the recording to Mel and asked him about it during his fourth interview session on April 12, 2022. Mel confirmed that, that Shields and he are the speakers in the recording and that the recorded conversation took place sometime around May 2021. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of secret taping as a practice, but in that case, he got him. Well, and yeah, when... There's a difference between is it admissible in court and does it tell you the truth? I mean, yeah. those are two different things. And I mean, yeah, I agree with you that it's that's that's probably in the moral gray area. But I mean, and, and by the way, it definitely the, brings into like brings to light. Like, can you trust other things that he said? Yeah. And the rest of the report has several instances where they say, you know, we do not find Mel Pearson's. Uh, point, uh, side of the story credible and they yeah. have seven or eight people um, on the other side of the story so yeah. there and, and then we have the GLI emails which were not um, the greatest smoking gun of all time like our old friends thought they were but they do show that Mel was a lot more involved in the cancellation than he claimed so we have a lot of circumstantial as well as very hard evidence to suggest that the integrity of the program is called into question uh, with this particular guy running it. And um, that combined with the hockey culture, uh, with the players, but also uh, there was this woman, Ms. Durkee, who basically quit her job at Michigan because it was so bad. Like, that's not great. Yeah, and the Bancroft no. stuff, it's it, it all piles up to a point at which it just makes more sense to move in a new direction and bring somebody new in. Um, especially when Mel Pearson never won a national title. He never won a Big Ten regular season. You can get people in here that can do as good, if not better, of a job without harassing people and lying and all of the other problems. Yeah, and we'll get into a little bit of his era and um, our opinions of him as a coach in a little bit. But um, the last thing that I think that we want to touch on is that just got weird, I think, is that uh, it was reported and, and maybe this wasn't true. So maybe it's a rumor. And that if that's the case, then, you know, maybe it's not true. But it was reported that Ward wanted an extension as late as Wednesday and he was let go on Friday. That and this was, is that was this the reporting is, everywhere. And this is after there was a literal 9-0 vote consist, consisting of eight regents and an interim president to get rid of him. <laughs> yeah, that was not great. I mean, it's literally like, what did you say? It's one person versus like nine, a, yeah. a, a nine an army of nine or whatever. And 
Well, and you knew who was going to win out there because the nine are the ones in charge of the one person's of the job. One. Yeah. <laughs> so, and... But no, that is extremely confusing. And we're not here to try and reconstruct Ward's decision-making process, but very confusing. And you I mean, can it... definitely wonder what the game plan for the athletic department was if the report never got out. I mean, were and they then, just going to roll up to training camp with the coach not <laughs> under contract or then they were going to tell us, oh, he is under contract. We just did. You know, did they? Here's what I'll say. Is it Lou Lamarillo? Is that <laughs> what you're telling me? Here's what I'll say. If Ward's plan was that the report would just never get out and people would stop caring when he extended Mel, he's delusional. I mean, like if he really thought the the plan was like, oh, we extended the coach and that public investigation that you all knew about. It, it concluded and he was completely innocent. We can't show you the results, but, you know, it was innocent. No issues there. And that it wasn't going to get out. I mean, come on. If you really I mean, thought that was going to work, I don't know what to tell you. I, I know that college hockey to the majority of people in the sports world is not that big of a deal. So there's a chance that there's a lot of people who follow sports I have no idea that this is going on. And I understand that because things like this probably happen in quote unquote minor sports around the country as it goes. But um, yeah, I just, I, I did not see any sort of <laughs> logical progression there at all. And I mean, I guess that speaks to why nothing happened for three months after the report was dated. I yeah. mean, it's one thing during the season, I guess, if you haven't gotten it back, you can kind of be like, well, we don't you know, really know yet. But then, I mean, early May, <laughs> yeah it, it's a very strange process but as we'll get into in the second segment they may have gotten off the hook okay and they that's may have purely because this is a very very hard job to mess up so uh, we'll get into that later so last thing that we should do just um from i don't know a summary nostalgic point of view is we can go through the Mel era a little bit post red, which started in the 17 and 18 season and ended a few months ago. It was five hockey seasons. Um, not bad. It was uh, definitely better than Michigan. Had, if this is, so let's just get this out of the way where this is our feelings and um, thoughts on, on the hockey side of things, not on yep. if we think that, Mel Pearson is the best guy or Rick Bancroft should be everyone's grandfather or something like that. This is just hockey. And I would say um, that it was not a bad five years. It was good in a lot of ways. They made two frozen fours. The first year was kind of out of the blue where it's a rough start and um, kind of get a lucky run in the second half. Uh, Hayden Levine just catches fire and Quinn Hughes, Josh Norris and the DMC line of Danks, Marodi, and Calderon carry Michigan, especially on the power play. Their penalty kill was one of the worst I ever remember at this university. But um, they win a couple of games, get to Notre Dame, and then just have one of the most gut-wrenching losses with about three seconds to go in the game where seemingly three people could have gotten the game to overtime by making one small fundamental play, and neither of them, none of them did. And, you know, they lose to Notre Dame – in what is essentially overtime in the national semifinal. You were there. I was there. Uh, a good time was not had by all. Yeah, that was unfortunate, but it was a, that was a fun first year. And, and, you know, you kind of look at the trajectory of that first high. And then the next year is kind of a fall from that where 
you lose some key players and I think a lot of people underestimated the losses. And then when Norris goes down with the injury, yeah. that season just kind of in the, the coldest game at Yost and, and yeah. against Mer- against it's Merrimack, Merrimack. Yeah. it's about negative 50 degrees. <laughs> and that the final two months of that season, they'd win a couple games and make you think like, Oh, maybe they actually can do something yeah. and they couldn't. Um, and when that year ended, it was kind of like, yeah, whatever. But that year three, I think, was actually one of the more charming years because they got off to a really bad start. It was not a good roster, but um, they played a lot better in the second half, as they always did. The the great unexplained thing in the Mel Pearson era is that why they could never play well in November and December and why it turned on in January and February for some reason. But uh, that was the year he brought Chris Mayotte in and he fixed yeah. the penalty kill. They played much better uh, defense. They really just, you know, trapped and grinded, uh, didn't have a ton of offense, but well, got through games. Right. And Strauss, Strauss man yeah. was very good. Strauss man was really good. The defense was pretty good. And they, in the second half of that season came charging uh, from behind and they beat up on Michigan state a few times. And then, they go into the Big Ten tournament. And they beat up Michigan State a couple more times. Not giving then, up a goal. Yep. And they were going into the Ohio State game in March of 2020 uh, with a potential tournament bid on the line. And that was a yeah. pretty stunning kind of turnaround from where they were earlier uh, in the year. And it unfortunately, uh, that game obviously never took place. But at that point is when it kind of changes. Because then after that, you have two years where there's a ton of talent and all the recruits start showing up. Yep. And... Uh, from there, the expectations are higher, but there was a, there was a sort of small time folksy charm about that third team. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't the best hockey I'd ever seen. No, they were they, a, a scrappy ragtag kind of team. They found ways to win games and they played, like you said, played defense. They um, I mean, Strauss man was starting to pop and it was um, he was like, this is going to be the next really good Michigan goalie. Yep. And then. The next year I called the staging year, basically, where you get all the freshmen, the hype is all there, a bunch of first round picks, a bunch of guys who are going to be first round picks. And it's a weird year, right? I mean, you play Arizona State four times. There are no fans. Yeah, um, and it was a choppy season. They get off yeah. to a really nice first four games. Then the next little bit is tough. That Thanksgiving weekend against Notre Dame was was real frustrating and then they don't have any players against Minnesota and get run out of the building <laughs> both nights. And then they come back in, in January and February and kind of hit their stride and then go into the big 10 tournament again and play Ohio and, state and just massacre them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then they, they had Minnesota dead in the third period and yep. Couldn't just quite get couldn't it done. Exterminate the gopher. And then they go into the NCAA tournament and they were given a really tough draw against Duluth and then uh, North Dakota no, no as the <laughs> overall one. number one in that bracket. I mean, maybe they would have won it. You never know, but probably not. And then they never get to play. And obviously the, the COVID stuff happens, which was also included in the report. But that was kind of a, a disappointing year in some ways. But I think overall that one wasn't uh I don't think they underachieved at all. Just they were a really no. young team. They were. I mean, they were what eight, nine players. seed, right? Yeah, so. they were national, top eight nationally, and and a lot of their guys were young. They didn't have a lot of veteran help besides Strauss, Mann, and Net. So, and it, and at the end of the day, that one didn't matter as much. It felt like because you were going into the next year, and everyone and, was coming back. And every and that was the key. And that was you're looking at. You're looking at are all those first round picks being like, well, we're good. We're going to play in the league. No, they all came back. 
all those other guys that hadn't been drafted yet go in the top like five uh, picks. Yep. There's like four of them. Plus Mackey gets drafted 24th and, or 5th and, or whatever. Yeah, and Luke Hughes joins the roster. And yeah, and then and Luke. And you're like, this is going to be the most epic college team ever. And in a lot of ways, it was. It um, was... It was always like almost there, but never quite. And they had a couple of big wins, but I mean, they went through the same sorts of struggles, right? I mean, the fall, the fall wasn't as bad for sure. No, but, but it was choppy and it wasn't as good as you wanted it to be. It wasn't as dominant. Um, no. They started off really well. They win the icebreaker tournament and beat Minnesota state. Um, and then from there they lose to Western. They have that inexplicable. Well, they they split with, yeah, they have the inexplicable loss on a Friday night to Wisconsin. Yeah. They throw that first game, especially away against Notre Dame after going up 2 0 in the, in the third yep. period. And so it's just kind of this is what it is. And then again, just like all the other years, January and February really turn it on. You have the very, very disappointing uh, little end to the season against Notre in Dame, South, Bend. South yeah. Bend, where they were not able to win the regular season title, but then they. Uh, played great in the Big Ten tournament. They yep. beat up on Michigan State. They played maybe their best game of all time against Notre Dame in yep. that semifinals, really polished. And then they blitz Minnesota in the final and they get the number one seed. And it was really exciting. It was exciting. And well, going into the Frozen Four, I mean, after beating AIC and Quinnipiac, you and I were like, I mean, they have as good a shot as anyone. And they had taken care of AIC in fine fashion, and they got a little uh, tight in the third period against Quinnipiac, yeah, I mean, but they were able to to stave off uh, <laughs> that very strange rally from from QPAC, and they win. And so you go into the Frozen Four, and you're playing Denver, and Denver was a really good team. We knew that, and I think Michigan, as we talked about back at the time, they didn't play their game enough. They tried to change them. It was kind of like Georgia against Alabama in the SEC title game where a team yeah. tries to change who they are to anticipate what the opponent will do. And, yeah. and it makes them worse off because it's not who they are. And right. they and did so, not play to their strengths. If there's a team that needed to just try to skate with Denver, it was Michigan and yeah. they didn't. And, and that's kind of like, you know, the last thing that I've written down is do they underachieve overachiever right on the money under Mel Pearson? And, you know, there's a little bit of overachieving early on. But I thought once all of the talent arrived, it was a bit of an underachievement. And there were some things that they had to learn the same thing over and over again. I thought too yeah. many times there. I mean, they had to fix the penalty kill and the defense the same kind of way in back to back years with the same players. That was frustrating. Um, some of his, you know, goalie pulls were a little odd. Some of uh, his game plans um a bit tentative. He couldn't adjust to certain types of coaching. Um, he was an A plus recruiter would all, I mean, got as good a talent as we've seen in a long time. Um, the fundamental development, which is what we're going to get into in the second segment a little bit was lacking at times. And I think that's what showed against good teams like Notre Dame, Minnesota, Denver, you know, you just, they couldn't out talent those teams and kind of ran out of room. Yeah, I mean, the struggles against Notre Dame in the final two years were very frustrating. Um, yeah. And, you know, they, they play on a very milquetoast system. They just kind of let the guys go out there and play and didn't do enough coaching, I don't think. They don't 
Not sure if they developed enough non-NHL guys outside of Man and Blankenberg relative to other programs, but the talent was so overwhelming that it didn't really matter at the end of the yeah. day. I mean, if they had won the Big Ten regular season title this past season, I think you could have said that was fine. I mean, right on the money because I mean that was that was one of the, our not winning the national championship. That, that's just random, right? It's, it's too one many game guys. In, one game in hockey, but that team should have won the regular season title. Yeah. So that's what I would say was their one underachieve. Otherwise. I don't know. I mean, I think that um, it was pretty close to what you would expect given the talent and everything else um, in terms of the the final outcomes. And this is kind of what I put in my exit Mel Pearson piece, which is it's the weird thing that a coach can be fired in disgrace and then still leave the program way better off than it was when he found (laughs) it. And that's the truth here, right? Mel, the recruiting drop-off and stuff he had to deal with taking over from red isn't applicable here. And he leaves behind a really talented roster with a recent culture of winning and, and guys still committing in the future. <laughs> yeah. And Which so it should be odd. easy enough to keep the train on the rails. Whereas <laughs> uh, he obviously had to kind of get it back on the rails after the final red years. So uh, that's a good part of the legacy, but obviously um, the next person in will have to patch up some issues uh, regarding team culture and those kinds of things and steady the ship. Um, and that I think is the, the complex Mel Pearson legacy. And we debated a little bit about this next person who we will get into in a couple of minutes. But um, I think that looking around at the pool of candidates, which we will briefly discuss, they might have had a good they have a good shot to have made a very good hire. That's the hope. If you find yourself in the penalty box in Ann Arbor or Metro Detroit, you want a Michigan man arguing your case. Call former prosecutor and now criminal defense attorney Jonathan Paul, the Michigan law grad at 248-924-9458 or visit his website at michiganlawgrad.com. Interestingly enough, you know, we had kind of kicked around even before a lot of this, like, you know, would there be a better coach for Michigan? You know, we brought up some issues with Pearson, obviously on ice. We're not getting into off ice stuff anymore, but like about could they find a better coach. And, you know, we came up with a couple of names over the last year or two even. um, And lately kind of the hot young name that we fell upon between the time of the announcing that, Pearson would be gone and Michigan would hiring a coach was actually Brandon Narado. We talked about it a little bit in the slack. You and I, we talked about it um, just back and forth about, uh, you know, we both heard a bunch of good things and um, he's very young, but uh, there's been a lot of like little rumors on Twitter about people saying, you know, this guy could be, even better. And in different hockey circles that you and I know people, they, there were whispers about how he's kind of like the, what the 
kind of the, the diamond in the rough sort of thing of where you, you never really know how these things are going to play out, but he kind of had the makings of like, um, this is might be a guy you want in the future. And somehow uh, that is who Ward chose, at least for interim, right? I mean, it's not a long-term, I don't think he has a, a deal, but um, he is currently now the head coach of Michigan hockey. Yep, he got the interim tag, which a lot of people were wondering about whether they would actually put an interim tag on a guy. But I think it's fine if you if, you, if for a year, right? Yeah, I mean, and I mean, I think the the advantage is you get a one year trial with a guy, and you can find out whether or not he is a long term option. And then if he is, you make him a long term option. And if he isn't, uh, then you go get somebody new next time around uh, in the spring. So. From that perspective, it makes sense. I mean, Nerado is a guy who you look at his track record, right? So he was a player at Michigan in the late 2000s. He was on the yep. 2008 team. He yep. was about uh, uh, close to a half point per game uh, over his four years at Michigan, scoring yeah, like 64 a, points in, I think, 130 games. Yeah, something like that. And an uh, even number between goals and assists was a kind of a just a, a generic third-ish line forward not much to say about that. Uh, not a guy. Play a lot of games. Yep. Not a guy who was ever really going to be a, a, a pro talent bounced around the lower, lower minors for a few years. But then that kind of wore, you know, ran its course. We'll say yep. that. Uh, and so he retired from playing in 2012 when he was 27, at which point he then moved into the player development uh, game. So, he was a consultant under his business, Narado Consulting, and he did a lot of his work in the summers with players who were affiliated with Michigan. Um, the not, list, not, not Chris and Jack, just to be certain, right? The, yeah. the list okay. on the Michigan website are Zach Wierenski, Quinn Hughes, Dylan Larkin, Jacob Truba, Jack Hughes, Kyle Connor, JT Confer, and Andrew Kopp. Basically anybody who lived in the area or who was playing at Michigan in the area. Uh, he was a guy they sought out and wanted to, they would come into him and, and this is my understanding. They would come to him and say, I want to improve in various ways. He would analyze it and then basically come up with a plan. He was kind of like the hockey version of like a fitness trainer, right? You get a trainer, <laughs> And you say, I would like to lose 15 pounds. And then the trainer comes up with, okay, you're going to work out the, this many days. You're going to eat these things. And then, you know, blah, blah, blah. You're going to lose 15 pounds. It would be that sort of thing. Someone would come yeah. and say, I want to improve at skating. I want to prove uh, your slap shot or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. And so he draw plans and then kind of implement them. And in sounds doing, like a coach. <laughs> <laughs> well, and in, in doing that through the 2010s, that got the interest of the Red Wings, who brought him aboard, I believe, in 2018. Nerado was from Livonia, by the way. Yeah. Um, they brought him in as a player development consultant. And at the beginning, his job was to drive to Grand Rapids three times a month and work with players in the AHL, I think was the beginning thing. And then to my understanding, it morphed into a much larger role, but in the same way, he was kind of doing a lot of the same things he was doing with players in the summers, except he was doing them over the course of a year where he was drawing up plans and then kind of working with them and implementing them. But he also has some experience in video analysis. Um, and uh, Connor Irgood of the daily uh, wrote about this um, a little bit in his, 
intro uh, to Narado at the program. Um, and there's a lot more information out there I'm going to try to dig into more because when Narado was really just a consultant, he would go on podcasts. He, there's a lot of, there's a paper trail, right? <laughs> there's yeah. things he's written. Yeah. There's things he said that um, looks into um, his, the, his brain and how he processes the game. Uh, Ear Goods Peace said that Narado tracked and discussed every power play goal in the 2017-18 season to compare how they were scored and analyze the offensive output of the Red Wings in the same season. His writing background shows that he not only understands what statistics mean, but he can also uh, tell their story. So he's done some video stuff. He's done, you know, play tracking and that kind of stuff, all of that sort of uh, statistical side as well as the skills and development stuff. And so that's a lot of what he was doing um, it, it, the Red Wings. And then last year in the summer, uh, Mel brought him on board and he began in the fall. There's a video on MGO Blue TV when he was being introduced or sometime after that, where they were talking to him, they were talking to Mel. And Mel basically said that he was talking to all of uh, his players and sort of asking them over the years, you know, what were you doing in the summers? And a lot of them said they were working with Brandon Narado, right? <laughs> what are you doing? We're working with Brandon Narado. What are you doing? Working with Brandon Narado. Right. So eventually it just was like, well, I might as well just get the guy if. Because he's already coaching my players. <laughs> <laughs> so um, at that point they brought him on staff um, and he was cited quite a bit in some of the quotes that were collected by some of the daily guys last year in, in press conferences and, and stuff after games where players would say, Oh, I like working with him or he's been working with me on this thing. My understanding is that he specialized on the power play last year um, mm -hmm. was his focus with the team. And I think a lot of his work has gone into offensive um, strategies and things like that, but that's kind of his background. And what we can say about him overall is kind of what we've heard from various people. Yeah. So I talked to Christy uh, McNeil, who uh, ironically was in the report, but also for bad um, reasons. <laughs> well, yeah. And, um, but she's the SID and I always get there really early and she walks around and talks to people. And I, so I've gotten to know her over the last few years and I had like my computer out and all my notepads and everything. And she comes over and she's like, what, what are you doing? Like, what is all this? And I kind of was explaining, well, I'm tracking like odd man rushes and like all the statistics of that kind of thing. Cause I put it in what I write about and I kind of walked her through it. She kind of was like, Whoa, that's really interesting. And I was like, yeah, she's like, that sounds like Brandon Narado. And I was like, really? Oh, that's good to know that someone was, and this was, you know, back in January or December or something like that. And um, so, and then I ended up talking to her a little bit after the season and she's like, he was always looking for people to have hockey discussions with and like talk about scenarios and talk about what to do and how do you handle this? And, you know, just hypotheticals up the wazoo. And it's like, when like after I had that conversation with her, I was like, that's great. <laughs> I mean, it's good. That it's not just like, you know, you joke about when we sit around and talk hockey about the, what the 200 hockey men say or whatever. And this is sounds very much not like that. I mean, he has playing experience, but he also is like a student of the game to the point of where he wants to analyze every little detail. And honestly, like, you know, Mel's strengths were a lot of his relationships and getting players in and, and recruiting and, and making sure that Michigan had 
the best talent available. And that's all well and good, but he wasn't the best at developing that talent. And Narado seems kind of like the opposite in, in that terms, where he's going to take whatever player you give him and give you the best version of it. But I think that he should very well be um, a pretty good recruiter. Because... Well, okay, sure, yes. I, I wasn't saying that he wasn't a good recruiter, but it was more like once he gets the guy, you know you're going to get everything from him. Yeah, I, that that would be the hope. I mean, I think that the sense, so we've heard a lot of good things about him from um, people on the ground, people that have worked at the, you know, the, the with teenage players while yeah. they're in the recruiting phases and things like that. And, um, you know, we've had the people inside the program tell us how much they love uh, Brandon Narada, but we've also had some people who are not in the program, not affiliated with the program. In some cases, people that would like to see the program crash and burn and <laughs> those people all pretty much were kind of especially the ones who are not michigan fans were pretty much kind of saying like man i really hope michigan doesn't get brandon Narado. right like if they're smart they're gonna make him the coach before long and yeah that's kind of what we had been hearing and obviously those people could be wrong and i think that there is definitely a sense that a lot of the praise comes from the fact that i think when people talk to him he seems smart which doesn't always mean you are smart, but um, in, in his attention to detail, the thoroughness, the way he's, he thinks about the game and wants to talk about the game, all that kind of stuff. I think that leaves a very positive impression with a lot of people, including uh, players. And that's where a lot of the hype comes from. But look, I compared it on Twitter that there was, and again, this is just basing off of what we have been told by people right? and that it, there, there were some similarities to the Lincoln Riley, Bob Stoops um, kind of thing at Oklahoma, right? Where you have the yeah. young assistant that everyone is foaming at the mouth over, and then you kind of have an older coach. And I thought that that situation was only going to arise in probably three years time. Um, yeah. Because Narada was in theory going to stay here a few years, but you know, within two or three years, if Michigan kept chugging along, someone was going to want to poach him, and right. Michigan was going to have a tricky situation on their hands if they believe he is as good as everyone says he is. Um, and now we're in a situation where we get to kind of find that out real fast and a little bit faster than I think we would like. I think ideally you would have wanted to have him be behind in a bench for a few more years as an assistant before fully taking over, but. Uh, that's kind of just the way it goes sometimes. And now we get to see what he's really made of. Well, yeah. And the one negative is like what you mentioned, he doesn't really have that level of a track record of in terms of coaching. And, and like you said, being behind a bench and probably formulating specific game plans and all that. He obviously does this year. He was there for a year, but before that it was more on an individual basis. But when you're leading up to who do you want to look at and that you think is like this guy has the makings of a coach or thinks like a coach or brings those assets to the table as like, well, we'd like that in our coach. I mean, he has all of that up to the point of, all right, well now it's time to see if he can actually do it. And, you know, I don't know how much responsibility he had in year one. You mentioned he worked a little bit, the power play and some offensive stuff, which is good because that's the generally where the game of hockey is going. But um, for a guy who doesn't have any specific coaching experience, he has everything else, it seems like, that you would want in a guy who is moving in that direction. Yeah, I will also say that, you know, a big part of college hockey in part is running systems. And that's how a lot of teams 
right? They have the same system. They just plug players in year after year, right? Notre, <laughs> Notre Dame. Notre Dame. No, Michigan notably. State. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> and that's what he doesn't have a lot of experience with because yeah. he has been a skills coach and that's kind of a different thing. So uh, he'll need to improve on that component um, of and just gain experience. And that's where I think building an assistant coaching staff is going to be very important because mm-hmm. those are going to be people who will help in that regard. Now we know that Bill McCult will be staying on staff. McCult. Yes. Um, he was a pretty loyal Mel guy overall. Um, was that with Mel at most all of his years at tech, he left for one or two seasons to go to the USHL and then came right back when Mel moved to Michigan. So, um, to me, that was a little, um, it was kind of close. <laughs> yeah. A little tighter relation there than I probably would have preferred. And I'm not sure if I would have gone in that direction, but at the same time, I also understand it might not have been the easiest to get assistance to be below an interim head coach two months before a season. <laughs> That's where, especially an assistant coach who's eight days older than me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I, I do think that, there was some potential problems there and I guess made more sense to keep him on board. It's hard to assess how much Bill McCall was involved in cultural issues because he was not the head guy, but he was with the head guy for a long time. It's tough, but I think it's notable that he was not given the job. Um, Well, that's (laughs) makes you wonder a little bit, right? Uh, When the guy who's 15 years younger than him or whatever thereabouts, because he played, well, yeah, it'd probably be about 10 years because he played in the mid nineties. He was on there on at least one of their national championship teams, I think. Yeah. So, Bill McCall has been an assistant for like 10 times as many years and has yeah. actually been a head coach at a notable level of hockey. So in the USHL, right? Yeah. So that I think is notable, but the fact that he was willing to stay on staff is also notable. So from that standpoint, it's a continuity hire, but that extra spot you have on the coaching staff, I think is an important one. And I've said it wouldn't hurt to have a older grizzled face as an assistant, I don't know who is retired that you can go and get, but um, somebody who perhaps just brings a little more uh, experience, that kind of thing. And I wouldn't hate if it was somebody outside the Michigan sphere. Yeah, um, no, I think fr- that would fresh, be great. A fresh sort of new voice, but with someone with a lot of experience and, and some lessons they can convey to a younger coaching staff. I mean, you said this originally, but the Phil Martelli, right? Yep, that's the, the idea. Um, it's just a matter of kind of finding out who that person is and who would be willing to take that job on a short time schedule and with, uh, you know, again, under an interim head coach. So are you surprised at this? I mean, because the funny part was as soon as, you know, the news had broke, you know, you and I are kind of texting back and forth and like, well, uh, looks like it's time for a hockey cast (laughs) and in the middle of summer, just like last year. And, you know, we did a little bit of work and, and you did a phenomenal job of compiling a bunch of um, options that Michigan could look at. And obviously, you know, we both sort of mentioned um, privately that we thought Narado was near the top, if not the top candidate. Um, but there are older, a bunch of other guys who have experience, who've been around not only other programs, but other NHL organizations as well, um, including some pretty well-established college hockey coaches that we were getting a little um, I was at least excited about before the news broke. And um, I guess in some ways I, I like it because it's sort of like you're really swinging for a home run here um, on a guy who has a lot of potential. Um, but are you surprised that it, it wasn't uh, just, you know, an established guy already? 
Well, the the interesting thing about all that was so they remove Mel, then within hours we hear that various candidates are throwing their hat in the ring, right? They've signaled to people that they're interested. And we heard that was the case with Jeff Blaschel, former coach of the Red Wings. So, as so well. we need to just say that he was a pretty good coach at Western. He was a very good coach the, at Western. He right. coached one. He has as many years in the NCAA as he does National Coach of the Year awards. So, Well, well, there's going to be a lot of overlap in this podcast of Red Wings fans, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah. And they're probably at some point going to be a little bit tired of the man and did not maybe not want him to follow uh, all of their teams around, including back to Michigan in that sense. But what you before have to remember he got is to, before he got to there's the a reason Wings, the Red Wings hired him. Yeah. Before he got to the Red Wings, his uh, resume was as sterling of a resume as you'll ever get. Um did well in the USHL, did unbelievable in one year at Western, then went into assistant in the NHL, then into the AHL. He won a Calder Cup in Grand Rapids. He won AHL Coach of the Year. I mean, and he's not that old. I mean, yes, he was was a sacrificial lamb in Detroit, and I think the players grew tired of him and the system got stale and the last year was pretty bad, but he was there was no chance he could have succeeded in that job, given where yeah. the franchise was and, and the hand he was dealt. So especially towards the end, he was he was an option I was definitely willing to listen to. Um, mm-hmm. And we had heard from another uh, paid subscription site that Rand Pecknold, the coach of Quinnipiac, supposedly had told some people he was interested. He's another interesting candidate because. Uh, he runs kind of a different system than Michigan does. He doesn't recruit a lot of NHL guys, but he basically well, built oh. a program off <laughs> from scratch he's, and he's is, is taken it from uh, D2 to D1 and then into the ECAC and dominates the ECAC and makes yeah. the Frozen Four a couple times and, you know, a long tracker. I mean, he's the winningest active D1 coach. Um, so, yeah, that would be pretty interesting. And... So- I sat in in Allentown. I sat in the press box and I shared a booth with the Quinnipiac guys like the SID and a couple of their assistants. And um, the guy who kind of talked to me over the way, because Michigan goes up, he just looks at me and he's like, so you've gotten to watch Luke Hughes all year. And I, was, I just started laughing. I was like, yeah, he's been pretty fun. And so we, we kind of start striking up a conversation and it was for nothing after the second. And he looks at me and he goes, don't be surprised if Quinnipiac starts the third period with their goalie pulled. And I just kind of looked at him and I was like, what, you know? And he's like, I'm telling you, that's what this guy will do. He's not afraid to take chances. He's not afraid to be aggressive. And I was like, well, good for him. Like, you know, there's a part of me that's like, sweet, maybe we win the opening face off. <laughs> but um I, I, when you had mentioned that to me, I was kind of a little bit taken because after having a conversation with this guy and then looking what he did, if you look back at the entire history of the Quinnipiac program, um, I mean, that's in some ways, not unlike what red did when he got here, obviously Michigan was really good a couple decades before, but they were not good when he got here and he had to build that program more or less from scratch as well. Yeah, Pecknold would have been an interesting candidate. I also had Chris Mayotte, who obviously was an assistant only a few years ago, now at Colorado College, where the first year was very bad, but that's no different than any of the other years, and he doesn't have any recruits of his own yet, so TBD on that one, but he did a fine job at Michigan. Yeah, he did a fine job at Michigan as an assistant and and was at Providence, where they were winning national titles when he was there, so good pedigree. I was definitely interested in him. I like Pat Fershweiler from... uh, 
Western Michigan, who had a great season there, taking them um, to a top five ranking. They like um, Michigan. Yeah. And then there were <laughs> some other names. Uh, Brock Shea the coach of the Chicago Steel was definitely a possibility. He could be a possibility to be an assistant if we're being. Frank. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was one. I mean, Mike Hastings in Minnesota State has just built a juggernaut year after year after year. I mean, I I think you should cast a wide net. And I was willing to consider all of these different names. And it seems like a lot of names were interested even on a shorter timescale. What I am glad about with the Narado thing is that they moved very quickly. And Mm -hmm. we had gotten a report uh, a day or so before where someone said um, they wanted to move quickly and expect a decision by the end of the month. And I'm like, that's not moving. (laughs) (laughs) What? <laughs> Training camp starts in September, guys. That's not the, that's not moving quickly. <laughs> no. And I mean, frankly, um, Ward has not really moved all that quickly in the past. The beeline, well, not, it, not in this whole second. The, the, the beeline replacement took a little bit. And then I thought they were way too slow with the baseball search and kind of let the transfer <laughs> portal um, wreak havoc on the roster um, <laughs> over the several weeks at which they did not have a coach. Um so I was a little concerned about that, but you get, and also the morning of the day we found out Narado was going to be the coach. John Bacon tweets out that red Berenson is being considered as an interim option. And uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, we might just slide right by that. So one. Th- this is kind of the, the Juwan versus Ed Cooley thing, right? Where <laughs> you, you hear some things that are very concerning. And then the thing that seems fine happens and you're, <laughs> overjoyed because the other things you were hearing I, were a I lot a, worse right before they hired juan and it was that the night of ed cooley i got a text from uh, a, a good friend of mine i probably told you the story and i'm not going to tell you his name but he, he texted me and said oh my god if we hire ed cooley i'm going on a bender <laughs> <laughs> i mean if, if they had hired red as an interim i i first off i don't think he would have accepted the offer, but given what I've heard about him, but number two, that's like the White Sox with Tony LaRusso. Yeah. <laughs> he falls asleep in the first intermission. <laughs> I mean, the thing about bringing Red out is that, like, it's a lost year, right? You have a year with a coach who definitely is not the long term well, yeah. solution. So, what are you yeah. doing, right? Yeah. Like, if you're going to use the interim, use it for someone that could be the long term solution yeah. as opposed to someone who, you know, I think the definitely thought is won't like, be. This team may not be as talented as they were last year, but they're still going to be really good and they're going to be strong in a lot of positions. And if you, you, if might... you keep Bill McCall on staff, you can probably yeah. have the coach be three dogs in a trench coat, right? And like, <laughs> you'll be okay. Well, maybe that's what they can put as their other assistant. Cause I mean, that, that would be in and of itself a reason to go to Yost. The last time there were dogs on the ice, one of them may have relieved himself and that was a big mess between periods. But I mean, this year is pretty this year is kind of a cruise control season in some ways. Right. And it's what happens after that. Keeping recruiting momentum going, keeping. uh, Well, they just got to recruit like during all of this. They get a a 16 year old kid who's like, I'm going to Michigan. Maybe he didn't know any of this was going on. (laughs) (laughs) Um. So, yeah, it's 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 a very, very easy college hockey job, which is why Rand Pecknold was interested among other people. Right. There's very few candidates anywhere in college hockey or the USHL or the AHL who would not quit their job immediately and take this one. 
Um, yeah. It's just you're dealt a really easy hand here. It's really easy to recruit. There's a tradition. And you're starting off with a really talented roster. So you should be able to win right away uh, at a reasonable clip that keeps the, the ball rolling. And then you just kind of, you know, uh, going from there. You don't have to really do any building. You just have to kind of keep going and patch up a few issues and then um, keep keep moving forward. Well, in, in Minnesota kind of made the first move in going to Moscow, right? And you're yeah. like, well, what are they going to do after Lucia? You know, he's sort of a big name and a, a pillar and everything. And they made a very good hire there. And at that point, you're like, he's probably the best coach in this conference. And so now Michigan was at a point where they needed to move on from a guy who had some success and what are they going to do? And, um, you know, it, it, it's not official because he's still interim, but he, I, I mean, we just, I think you and I are as high on him as we would be um, anyone if they bring in, like if they would have brought in any of those guys on the list or any of the couple guys on the list that we haven't even talked about. I don't think there's really many people unless you're talking about, you know, bringing in John Cooper or Jared Bednar or something like the, like that is going to elicit more of a, yeah, you know what? This is, this is pretty exciting. I'm, I'm in for this. Yeah, this is, um, I, I, it's a good use of an interim year, right? It's a good use of a season where it's kind of going to be a bit of a, a question mark and, you might as well use it on someone that has really high upside and we'll, you know, we'll see how it goes. Yep. Uh, anything else about this or should we chat a little about the draft? Uh, we can do the draft. So we did not, Michigan had another nice draft because I mean, this is the players that they're recruiting. Um, it was not four first round picks. It was only two this year. So we didn't do a podcast specific for that. Um, Partially, honestly, because in the back of both of our minds, it was probably like, well, this podcast could be looming at some point as well. Um, so the two two of the best players Michigan's going to get, I won't say the two best because their best might be a guy who's in next year's draft, but um, Rutger McGordy and Frank Nazer, who you really like, as we discussed recently, um, both go mid first round. I think what 13 and 14 back to back to in the lottery. Chicago and Winnipeg, Nazer yep. to Chicago and McGordy to Winnipeg. And then Seamus Casey, their defenseman, um, sort of their puck moving small, but good skating offensive defenseman uh, goes, what was it? Second or third round? Second round. Pick second round six. Okay. To New Jersey, which is interesting given what's happened last year and who New Jersey's been drafting. They seem to have a type, as does Michigan. And, um, you know, I I don't think Chicago's in a great spot right now as an NHL franchise. Um, And Winnipeg seems to be a bit of a mess themselves in their own way. But New Jersey is certainly compiling assets and it's also hard for me to see any of these guys being probably a one and done. Uh, they probably will not be, I would be, I mean, I guess if Nazar went crazy, that could happen, then they'll probably be two year players would be my guess. Yeah. I would say at least, um, but that's, you know, three guys in the top two rounds. I think Minnesota had three first rounders. So Michigan did not have the most in the big 10, but I mean, you add that to Samuskevich and to Hughes and um, obviously Portillo is still in the backstop. Um, Adam Fantilli is going to be what? Probably a top five, top three pick next year's draft. 
I mean, they are, are going to be reloading and we, you know, we talk about Nerado and, and what he's going to do as coach. Well, these are some of the moldable pieces that he's going to have to work with. And, you know, he, that's probably one of the good things about having him and McCall is like both guys were in on all of these guys for the last at least year, if not longer. Yeah. And I would not, I mean, we don't have any verification on this, but I would not be surprised if many of the players um, are more happy with Brandon Narado as the coach <laughs> than Mel Pearson, given the survey results. And also I mean... just the basic <laughs> fact of going from a 63 year old to a 37 year old, those kinds of relatability things. Um, so yeah, I, I'm very high on this roster. I mean, look, Frank Nazar and going to Chicago, they're in a bad spot right now, but he's going to be in college for two years, could maybe spend a year in the AHL. I mean, he's really the first building block of their rebuild. They're starting yeah. a scorched earth rebuild, and him and Kevin Korchinski, who they took in the lottery, those are their first two building blocks. So that's yep. kind of cool. I mean, he's kind of like Bortolo, right? It's kind of the <laughs> first of a new kind of, you know, Wave. rebuild of, yeah. a, of a franchise. And obviously, Chicago, famous franchise, good location, really nice stadium good fan base when they win. I mean, it's not a bad outcome. If you think they can rebuild competently, if they don't, then that will be bad. But and in some sense, local, right? I mean, yep. like it's not the worst thing at all for him. So, right. Um, McCordy. Yeah. Eh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like the jets. I, I try to root for him in, 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 you know, when it doesn't impact the abs or whatever, but um, not the best couple of years for them. And I mean, they could like, be in a rebuild very soon. pretty quickly potentially yeah. depending on how things go and casey he joins a really talented depth chart at, at defense where they already have luke hughes in the pipeline uh, they have obviously ethan edwards they draft simone nemich uh second overall in this draft who's another very similar player to those guys as a yeah as a puck moving guy and then uh, casey joins that as well so there's a lot of young players on that team and you know, I think these three guys all fine picks and it, it, it should be a really good roster with with the talent they're bringing back, the talent they're adding. Um, I don't know if they'll be better than Minnesota, but I will do know that when those two teams play, there are going to be so many NHL <laughs> players on the ice. I mean, those will be must, <laughs> must watch. I mean, even more so, right? Because now you add Fantilli and Logan Cooley. I mean, those could be yeah. uh, top three picks as the number one centers. Um from the two teams going up against each other. So that's pretty cool. Good for the yeah. league. Yeah. Good for college hockey <laughs> overall, I would say. Um, so I think that given how all, all of the turmoil of the last, well, year plus now, I mean, I mean, going back to all the man situation and the, and the shield stuff, and then through what was a fun hockey year in on the ice and not quite as great off the ice in ways. And then a weird summer. I mean, it seems like this is as positive as we could probably be about, I mean, cause they're, they're not going to lose anybody. Right. I mean, because that's what happens. The coach leaves you're like, Oh, transfer portal is going to be full. I, I mean, it's possible, but like, it doesn't seem like anyone's leaving that I've heard. Yeah. I, I do not believe so at this point. So getting a guy who has worked with all these players, been on staff, having the top assistant return, it just seems like this is, I mean, I mean, cause this could have been bad. I mean, this could have been like program. I don't want to say shut down, but like, I mean, there could have been like probation stuff. There could have been NCA penalties. There could have been a lot of stuff and it's probably as rosy as you could expect it to be after a situation like that. Yeah. Uh, I think that they came out 
from this situation pretty pretty well overall. Uh, and I think that they're set up to have a good season. And again, just kind of keep the keep it rolling. That's what you always want is to keep re- recruiting momentum going, to keep um, just the on ice stuff going. And if you can be a top ten team and get a, a high seed in a tournament, that'd be three straight years of that. And at that point, you've kind of got a program going. I mean the the question whenever you make this kind of move is is it Larry Coker taking over right and then it just declines <laughs> later or is it uh you know something better where it just kind of keeps going right there's plenty of examples and things that worked out right Michigan this was talked about on the site is that uh right Steve Fisher and and Lloyd Carr both were interims who uh worked out for a few really good years after that and then yeah uh, you know, ideally you'd like it to last a little longer than that, but, um, well, you got a guy who's 37. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know what his dreams are as a coach, but I mean, play that was, here. The, that was the one thing that if I had done a coaching candidates piece, I would have talked about more is, is you do have to be careful. Like when Jeff Blaschel says, I want the job, he's not staying for 20 years. He's, <laughs> he's going to win. And then he's going back to the NHL, right? Yeah. Like that's just what he wants. Uh, I don't know what Nerado's ambitions are, but that was something Michigan was going to have to be very careful of because any NHL assistant that says I'm coming here, they're just doing that to then, you know, get the ticket back to the league. So, but played it, like we said, played here four years from Livonia, which is, you know, a three iron down the road. And I mean, has worked with a lot of the guys who've, who've been here for a while. Yeah. I mean, I suppose he could leave if, if he hits it big at some point, but you'd imagine that he wants to um, at least stay a little bit if he can make it work. Yeah. That would be the hope. All right. Well um, that concludes our coverage of this event. Um, I suppose other things occur. We can always have another conversation. <laughs> yeah. I think ideally we'd like to come back uh in early October or late September for the season preview, but uh, I guess if something really big happens before then, then we might have to. Yep, that sounds good. Hopefully it works out. listening to Michigan Hockey Cast 4.27 for Alex Drain and David Nasternak. This is the final episode of the season, unless there's another. There probably won't be, but if there is, you'll be listening.